0: My name is Kateri Zuni, and I am speaking with Sam Quinones. Sam is a journalist and writer of the acclaimed book, Dreamland, which gives an eye-opening and poignant account of the opiate epidemic in the US. Welcome to Generation Justice. Sam, can I have you introduce yourself, please?
1: My name is Sam Quinones. I'm a journalist and author of the book, Dreamland,
0: the true tale of
1: America's opiate epidemic.
0: Tell me, how did you become interested in the topic?
1: I kind of backed into this story. I had lived in Mexico for 10 years. I had done a lot of work uh, writing about immigration, small Mexican villages in many parts of the country. And in the 1990s into the 2000s, that's really where my focus was. I came back to the United States, got a job with the L.A. Times in 2004. And in that year and really into 2005, the Mexican drug war kicked off. And in 2008, I was put on a team of reporters to cover that drug war. My job was really to cover how drugs were were trafficked across the United States once they crossed the border. And so that's what I was doing. And I came upon a series of stories of overdose deaths to black tar heroin in Huntington, West Virginia, a state that I was unaware had any Mexicans. I was unaware that it had any demand for heroin at all. And yet here were people dying of uh, heroin that was made only in Mexico and was in quantities. The quantities were enough to kill lots of people in a very short period of, a period of time. So my, my approach was really to try to understand, or the way I entered this story, was really trying to understand how Mexican heroin dealers were doing such good business. All of a sudden, I had been a crime reporter off and on for, for many years, and heroin, I thought, was kind of old stuff, old passe, you know, who gives that stuff anymore, you know. But um, here were people using it, and in states that I did not consider and did not associate with heroin, like, like West Virginia, for example, I really had missed entirely the whole pain revolution because I had been in Mexico during the years when it was happening. I mean, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what a Vicodin or Oxycontin was or what hydrocodone or Oxycodone were. I really backed into it. And it was only after getting into that story that I realized that the really story, the real story, the big story was that uh, this pain revolution that had changed the minds of doctors all across the country and turned the, many of them into converts to to very aggressive uh, prescribing of these pills, and that that is what had led people in states like West Virginia and many others uh, to grow addicted to heroin. But it was coming. I came from the Mexico. I kind of backed into the story, looking at Mexican heroin traffickers first. And then realizing, oh, behind that is a much bigger story of of pills, U.S. medicine, and doctors' uh, prescribing habits.
0: Just kind of getting into the book right off, Sam, as you write it, the opiate epidemic really has several moving parts. Can you give us a brief synopsis of the major contributors that you identified?
1: Sure. Really, the first is a revolution in pain management in the United States, really promoted by kind of a young group of pain specialists across the country, aided in that by the pharmaceutical uh, companies that made prescription painkiller, narcotic painkillers. And it held that um, we were a country in pain, uh, an epidemic of pain, and we needed to uh, treat it. And really, we had been falling down on the job because we had a tool with which to treat pain. And we now knew, science now knew, that these pain pills, prescription narcotic pain pills, opiate pain pills, were virtually non-addictive. Less than 1% of all people who received them to treat pain got addicted. And this became, through the beginning in the late 80s and into the 90s, 1990s, really became conventional wisdom, promoted, as I said, by those two groups, but also by certain hospital institutions in America. A lot of pain specialists kind of got on that bandwagon. And eventually, they convinced many, many doctors across the country, primary care doctors, ER docs, and the rest, that this was the case and that they ought to be prescribing these pills far more aggressively, far more liber- liberally than they had been up to that point. These, these pills all contain drugs that are opiates, that are, that are very similar to heroin. One extreme of this pain revolution was a, a phenomenon called the pill mill, which is a pain clinic in which the doctor has basically lost all his bearings and scruples and basically prescribes these pills without any pain diagnosis whatsoever and receives in return cash payments. He doesn't usually accept insurance, only cash. And these became a part of the problem as well. They were outliers, and I don't believe that they were the most important factor in all this. The real important factor was that hospitals and doctors all across America, well-meaning, sincere, legitimate hospitals and doctors bought this idea and, and began prescribing these pills uh, very aggressively. Turns out the science that they pointed to was wrong. It wasn't really science at all, as a matter of fact, and that people, many people did get addicted. Uh, many people got addicted from using these pills exactly as doctors prescribed. Others got addicted because there was now a massive new uh, supply of, of pills out there and a lot of it leaked into the black market and a lot of people used it recreationally, abused it, and got addicted. And many of those folks, a good number, it's not clear how many, but hundreds of thousands of folks um, uh, eventually switched to heroin because heroin now was coming from Mexico, which made it far cheaper, far more potent, far far more prevalent, and a real cheap alternative. To the pills on the street, which are extraordinarily expensive. Those three things over a period of like 20 years and some other stuff, that's our bones idea of how we got to the point where we are uh, today.
0: Yeah, thank you. And I think that's definitely true. Just my own experiences in a hospital. Really, all you have yeah. to do is kind of look at a chart and say, I'm this much in pain, and there you right. go.
1: Exactly, and there were there were a lot of things like that. There were those pain management skills. There were doctor evaluations where you were able to give a doctor a bad evaluation if he didn't give you the pills that you were asking for. A lot of that went into it as well.
0: In the book, we spend a lot of time in kind of those small towns. New Mexico, as you know, has some of the highest rates of heroin use and overdose, especially in northern New Mexico. Can you give us an idea of the role that New Mexico has played in all this?
1: In my own research, I came across the guy who basically brought black tar heroin to Santa Fe, to the Chimayo areas, that whole valley there, that, that's my Valley, that's really, uh, that, as you say, has been so afflicted by this this problem. And And I think that was a telling Part of it, the guys that I talk about in the book are from a small town in Mexico in the state of Nayarit. The name of the town is Jalisco, Nayarit. As it turns out, it happens to be or was at one time. I think it's still a sister city to Taos, New Mexico, as a matter of fact. But they developed a system for selling heroin-like retail, like pizza. So an addict would call an operator. In a town, wherever the town was—Albuquerque, for example, or Santa Fe, or what have you—the operator would dispatch a driver to meet the uh, addict and make the deal that way. And it was a it was a system that was not a cartel; it was a small kind of business model that anyone could imitate. And these guys from this one town, and really eventually the the, the county, county of about forty five thousand people, took this system all across to many many other parts of the United States. I found the guy who took it. To Santa Fe and that whole Chimayo area and all that area in, in the late 19, 1990s. And he, that story is very interesting because in the Chimayo area, people had lived, not well, but had lived with heroin addiction for decades. And no sooner did he, and because it was the heroin that they were using, was a lot of it, I believe, was coming from, the, from Vietnam at one point. Uh, someone was coming from Mexico, but it was very diluted. And these guys came with very, very high-potency heroin, and immediately people began dying. I think 2% of the area, the town of Chimayo died in a two-year period because they, these were veteran heroin addicts, yet they were used to a heroin that was much weaker. And that is really the story of this whole epidemic. Now that the heroin mostly comes now from Mexico, the, the other cartels, real cartels have gotten involved in it in the last couple of years so what we're seeing now all across the country is what happened in New Mexico in the late 1990s, which was a new, new heroin coming in from Mexico that people are, are uh, unprepared for or just cheap, prevalent, and potent. All that combination is a real deadly one. And so people all across the country now, uh, since almost all our, our heroin comes from Mexico or through Mexico from Colombia, extraordinarily deadly now because it's so potent and cheap. And the uh, the story of Santa Fe and the Chimayo area, I thought was a scary one, but it was also the first time when law enforcement, DEA, FBI, and others figured out that uh, this system, and that this system was the first system, drug system that they ever busted, and those agencies I understand, that went from coast to coast, went from California to North Carolina and many, many places in between. What wasn't quite happening in the year they made that bust was that a lot of the people it was just beginning to happen I should say that a lot of the clients that they were beginning to get as customers in the system were pill addicts first so it's been going on for 15 years this whole issue it's only in the last year that that people have awakened to it and that's a remarkable thing too I think because again this has been going on for many many years and uh, it's just now that it's a big story.
0: Yes. And I I think it's so interesting that so many people do start off using and abusing um, prescription painkillers. And in that, I think we all have a very clear kind of junkie stereotype when we think of heroin use. In what ways has this epidemic kind of changed that image?
1: Well, because it's gone to, you know, every corner of America, I think almost literally you could say that, that you could find Uh, abuse of pain pills in almost every part of this country because again as i said it was doctors who who were convinced that this was okay to do and there are so many more doctors than there are drug dealers in america and and if they buy into an idea which they did then you're going to find this in yeah in places all over vermont and alabama and and west virginia as i said and not just places next to the border, not just places near Mexico or anything. It's all over the place. It's also in areas where they have never really had this problem ever before. And it's affecting rural kids, suburban kids. It's almost entirely, I would say, early on in my research, I assumed this was like 90 percent white. Later, I became convinced it was probably more like 95 percent white. Um, I've seen some signs that other Other uh, folks from other races are are getting involved or ethnic groups are getting involved in this. But honestly, it's not, I don't think it changes the fact that that virtually everybody involved in this so far who's gotten addicted, I should say, not dealing it, but gotten addicted, is white. And these are in very red areas of the country, you know, Georgia, Alabama, as I said, Tennessee, places like that. It's no longer. Heroin was kind of like the urban denizens' uh, drug, you know. Beginning with the folks on the wild side, as Lou Reed said, uh, you know, you got jazz musicians and 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 the homosexuals and drag queens and all these folks, kind of like the urban the urban outcasts uh, core. And through the 70s, it was a kind of a ghetto drug out here in Los Angeles. Certainly East L.A. was uh, a, a wash in heroin in the 1970s. That, those areas really are not affected, as from what I can tell to any great degree, um, by this problem. This is suburban, rural, uh, wealthy white communities, poor white communities, but almost entirely white communities.
0: And because the face of that pain pill abuse is overwhelmingly white how do you think that has affected legislation surrounding the issue as opposed to say the crack cocaine crisis
1: yeah i was a i was a reporter during the crack years i was a crime reporter during the crack years and uh, a few things were true back then first of all associated with crack was very very high scary a high level of public violence Mm -hmm. drive-by shootings were resurrected from the old prohibition days uh, carjacking was invented as a crime, basically. Uh, there were bullets whizzing through apartments. It was a very public crime. You never heard back then uh, calls for treatment. Uh, I never did anyway. Almost everybody, and I would say including uh, people in the black community, frankly, were calling for police to do something about it, and at least in the town where I was, which was Stockton, California, a wash and crack. Ho- horrible, horrible problem that town had when uh, the four years I was there. And so what you had was really a very different approach now because it's so quiet, because there is no public violence associated with it and because it's affecting, um, you know, the dominant ethnic group, white racial group in this country and who have never had to deal with this before and never understood how to do, are not prepared for it and and don't know what to do about it now you're you're hearing that. It's a a very very interesting political socio let's call it a socio political change among people who have had this affect them and that is to say um, we need to treat this now as a disease. It's we our children uh, are are getting felonies, but they don't need they, they don't need felonies. They need they need treatment. This is giving people prison time or jail time is not an appropriate way to treat this. Uh, we need to actually find uh, treatment beds for them and this kind of thing. And that has been widely accepted because they are very powerful and numerous and now vocal in the last year or two, it's also been helped by the fact that attitude, I do not believe, would ever be politically palatable, even if it's affecting the kids it's affecting today, if there were associated with the heroin epidemic, the same kind of public violence that you saw associated with crack. You you just don't have it. It's just there's no drive-by shootings, there's very, very, very few anyway. Uh, not notable, and so it's it's a kind of a combination of things. It's affecting people who've never been affected before. They're numerous. They're politically important. They're politically they have a voice. They have money to donate. They know the, the le- legislators in their in their towns and so on. But uh, at the same time, there is uh, nowhere near the level of public violence associated with this epidemic as there was uh, associated with crack. And so that has uh, those two factors, I believe, have allowed this new attitude to, to flourish that we need to use we need to treat addiction as a disease of the brain and not as a, a moral failing that we you know we need to punish people with jail and prison for.
0: And what critique would you give of the media coverage that you have seen that has surrounded the issue?
1: Well I tell you, first of all there wasn't a lot of it until the last year or so. I mean I, I began this book two thousand twelve and there was almost no coverage of this stuff. None. I would say, Not none, but very, very little and only hesitant kind of coverage. Part of the problem was, and it gets back to what I was talking about just a minute ago, and that was that the parents of the kids were unwilling to talk. People have said, you know, this is only an epidemic because there's lots of white kids dying, and that, that's why it's getting the attention. And my, my response is, no, it was quiet because it was a white drug. The white Families who have kids who are dying were mortified, embarrassed, horrified that their kids would get addicted to this drug that they believe was like the worst of all illegal drugs. And so they kept quiet. And that's the situation I found for the first two, three years when I was writing my book. Uh, some few were very much in the news, but compared to the numbers of kids who were dying, it was just was, wasn't even, there was no comparison. It was just a minuscule, minuscule number. Now you're seeing parents put heroin addiction and the obituaries of their kids on Facebook. They're on they're in parent groups. There are all kinds of very public ways that they're acknowledging this. But that is only in the last year. And it's really because of that that we've had lots more uh, coverage of this, honestly. It, it's become a thing to write about. And, it, and, of course, people now are tripping over themselves. Uh, everybody is you know, on the bandwagon to cover this thing now. Whereas my feeling was that this has been going on, as I said, for 15 years. No one's really no one really covered it much. No one covered the heroin, the pills to heroin connection that to me was obvious. I could see that like in 2009. And that's why I wrote when I wrote a story about the uh, these guys from Mexico. That's what I mentioned. It didn't have enough room to actually expand on it. But uh, this was something that I was convinced of six years before. And what I've found is now that, yeah, everybody wants wants to cover this, this topic. And it's getting kind of the press that it, it deserved for uh, years ago. Now it's all of a sudden, like in the last year, just been just on everybody's radar all of a sudden.
0: I think you're right. It is an obvious connection. And when you speak about or when you write about, you know, drug companies kind of abusing statistics to make it look like,
1: an mm-hmm. opiate
0: derivative drug could somehow be non habit forming or non addictive just seems right. so counterintuitive to me. And I wonder like how is that even possible?
1: Well, that's a very good question. And that's uh I, I think what, what happened part, partly what happened was this. Americans began became, became almost childish in their demands to have their to be fixed. Mm-hmm. You know, we became as a country almost childish like we, we demand that our health problems be fixed now that doesn't mean that we as a health consumers are going to get more exercise eat better participate in our own wellness in very aggressive ways the way you ought to and that's people have shown that if you do that your chances of getting bad bad pain problems reduces dramatically but that's hard to do it's complicated it's asking us to be accountable to ourselves and we're not we're not good at that and so what ended up happening was all these doctors became kind of under the gun. All, you know, the, the patients were like, hey, I want to be fixed, you know, this kind of thing. And, and this was an attitude. It was, a, to my way of feeling, uh, thinking it's very childish, petulant, kind of infantile attitude, but but adopted, I think, across across the country, frankly. And doctors were hearing this. And at the same time they were hearing this, they were also hearing from the from the pharmaceutical companies, and you know what, we have an answer for you, we have a solution, and it's easy and it's quick and you can end those appointments with your patient by pulling out a prescription pad and writing out a prescription it's so easy it's quick and for a while it does take care of the pain the problem is it doesn't take care of it forever it masks it and a lot of people get addicted to it and etc but there was pressure on doctors doctors need to reassess what they did what they're doing uh, i believe very very deeply but it's not only – they were not the only ones here involved. We as Americans began to have this very very simplistic attitude, very uncompl- – we didn't want things that were complicated. We just wanted something to, to fix, like uh, one guy said in the, in the book. They viewed their, their bodies as cars and doctors were car mechanics, and we mm-hmm. were supposed to fix them. And that attitude, I believe, was really prevalent in, in the country, still is, I think. And that led doctors to look – aggressively for some kind of solution there the doctors most doctors mean very well they want to help people get and pain is a big problem and they 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 felt that this was something that they absolutely had to do and along come these these kind of specious studies or non-studies or whatever you want to call them and the pharmaceutical companies taking it door to door with this very very aggressive sales pitch this was by the way uh, these were years when there was this, uh, a sales force arms race in the pharmaceutical industry where every company was hiring more and more. And in the early 90s, there was like 35,000 pharmaceutical sales reps. By 2003, there was 120,000. You know, it was like like the massive sales. And, and, and little by little, the pressures on doctors, there were financial pressures as well. You can make a lot of money prescribing these pills, et cetera. All of that kind of changed. And that's how you create a new conventional wisdom, I
0: guess. Yeah, I agree. And also, I think that whole kind of throwing a pill or throwing a prescription at you, considering that treatment, makes uh, alternative medicine look like other or less than in comparison.
1: And more complicated and difficult. And, oh, you know, acupuncture, oh, isn't that Asian? Or is that kind of, does that really even work? And, uh, you know, uh, swimming, oh, well, you know, I have to go swimming then. (laughs) I don't want to go swimming. (laughs) Uh, You know, that kind of thing. There's a lot of reasons why patients kind of rebelled. Not part of it. None of them were good. I don't think. I mean, it was the truth of it is this whole story is about how we search for the simple solution.
0: Yeah, um, I've I've heard you mention before that this book, specifically the title, is kind of a metaphor for America. Can you explain a little bit of that?
1: Yes. I mean, the book comes from a swimming pool that existed in a town, a Rust Belt town, but at one time was a very thriving town on the Ohio River in in Southern Ohio, Portsmouth, Ohio is the name of the town. And this town had steel mills. It had a steel mill. It had shoe factories. It had a bunch of other businesses, a booming main street, uh, backed with businesses, and a real community. I mean, it had... All of this was pro- provided this kind of immune system to a lot of social ills. Mm-hmm. Well, the steel factory leaves in nineteen eighty the The shoe factories have been leaving slowly more of them leave main street the people begin to leave main street empties out and in 19, 1993, they they closed this pool. This pool was like almost like the soul of the town. It was this place where everybody looked out for one another, where everybody saw one another. It was a very egalitarian place. It was a place where everybody looked the same in swim trunks. It was a place where there was always more. The guy who owned the pool for a long time was a shoe factory owner as well, and he didn't need the pool of money. So he reinvested the pool's money into improving the grounds and buying more grounds. And so there would be a swimming pool, but there was also uh... you know picnic tables and then there's a baseball then there's basketball then there's a, you know all these other things And uh, it it grew and grew until it was enough for everybody. Everybody was there. You know, everybody could be a part of this. And it was a wonderful place for everyone to grow up in community, not Mm -hmm. isolated. And when they destroyed that pool, it was almost like they destroyed the soul of the town or the immune system to this town. And it became very vulnerable then. The town turned inward. It was half the size. Uh, It had been uh, Walmart literally replaced uh, the pool as a social spot where you, the only place you actually saw anybody anymore was at Walmart. Nobody was, you know, there's no pu- public place where you could socialize anymore. Mm. And this left the town extraordinarily vulnerable, like its immune system had been damaged and been extraordinarily vulnerable to a drug that is as is isolating, already an isolated town. It's, uh, this drug was so isolating. Heroin and, and opiates are so isolating. They break everybody into like little individuals and nobody wants to be a part of anything, and, and you're, you're fatalistic, and all you do is kind of go and steal stuff, and that destroys the town further, and and my feeling is that from that, I, I drew a few things, lessons, but one was that, that isolation is heroin's natural habitat, and I tried to understand what is the common denominator between a very poor town now, like Portsmouth, And a very wealthy town like Charlotte or Portland, Oregon, say. Charlotte, North Carolina, Portland, Oregon. And the one common denominator, why do these three towns all have the same problem? The common denominator is that the isolation we feel in America today is in all three of those places. We may be wealthy, we may be middle class, we may be poor, but the isolation is tremendous. We're all, no one is outside anymore. You can be friends, quote unquote, with people across the world and not know who the guy across the street is. Parks, nobody plays in the park. Uh, they dug up Dreamland and they put in, literally, they put in a parking lot. That's exactly what they did. That kind of isolation has been happening. Our suburbs are are, are horribly isolated, isolating places. Yet we call them prosperous. All of this was the country's story in a certain in a certain way. Even though uh, much of the country is doing far better, of course, than Portsmouth, Ohio. It nevertheless was this a story of, of how if you create enough isolation, you will break down the societal immune system that your community has to a drug like heroin, and you will be awash, and that's kind of what we've done coast to coast, seems to me.
0: Yeah, that's an important lesson to learn, embedding Oh, I think so.
1: I think so. It's, it's not what I set out to write. I mean, I thought I was writing a crime book, a drug book, and in turn, it became a story more about who we become and what we become as Americans.
0: Sam, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for your work in this book, and as a journalist, I appreciate it. It was my pleasure.
1: Thank you for your interest.